Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leanne. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Black Agenda Report has a great piece written by Ajamu Baraka entitled Trump Calls for Peace in Ukraine While Democrats Make Support for War a Midterm Campaign Issue. Baraka writes, Donald Trump is no peacemaker, but his stance on negotiations to end the war in Ukraine is in stark contrast to that of the Democrats who fully support continuing the dangerous proxy war against Russia. Anti-war forces must step up and struggle for peace. For insight into this, we turn to our first guest. She's the senior editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of Prejudential, Black America and the President's Margaret Kimberly. As always, Margaret, welcome back. Thank you. So Ajamu continues, since the U.S. sponsored coup in Ukraine in 2014, taking a stand against the plan by the U.S. to use Ukraine as a weapon of war against Russia was a perilous stance for pro-peace and anti-imperialist forces. What made opposition especially difficult was that the plan was being executed by the administration of Nobel Peace Prize winner Barack Obama, with the full support of the right-wing neoliberal establishment that controlled and still controls the U.S. state. Margaret, this is a very important but not often discussed fact. Obama and the neoliberals got us into this mess. How dangerous is it when Trump and the oldest living suspected war criminal, Henry Kissinger, are to the left of Democrats? I mean— Margaret, we have really entered the bizarro world. We certainly have. And, uh, you know, Obama, we can uh, thank slash blame him for bringing us to this point. He was marketed as a progressive, marketed as a, a leftist, marketed as the peacemaker, when, of course, he was nothing of the sort. He had already made his deal uh, uh, with the ruling classes, which is what everybody does in order to become president, Right. And among other things, during his administration, he is responsible for the 2014 coup against the elected president of Ukraine, which the uh, Obama administration joined with right-wing forces there to bring this current regime to power. That is the beginning of this story. This did not begin in February 2022 with the Russian special military operation. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people who should know better by now are still enthralled to this idea of, um, uh, to Obama himself and to the idea of Obama instead of to the reality. This situation is a disaster. That is why people such as Henry Kissinger, who is evil but a smarter person, uh, have um, uh, publicly spoken about the dangers, as well as Trump, who, while he was president, he, he was also, there were a lot of people who hoped he'd be the peacemaker president, and he wasn't either, big surprise. But um, he does have a better understanding of the mess that the Biden administration and uh, the other NATO nations, the EU nations, have made. Not only is there a hot war in Ukraine, 
But there has been a worldwide economic downturn, inflation, uh, shortages of fuel throughout Europe, protests, the risk of nuclear war, which, by the way, Biden is the only one who's talked about. Putin hasn't said anything about nuclear war. And uh, so, yes, we are in a situation where these people whom uh, we revile otherwise and for good reason seem to be the adults in the room. You know, another interesting thing is you see now Elon Musk will come out and say, hey, you know, perhaps we should uh, have a little bit of uh, restraint here. On Twitter, all of the blue checkmark Democrats attack him. All of the not Ukrainian Nazis and bots attack him. The aligned forces of the woke mob, the neocon crazies, the Nazis in Ukraine are have all become this blob. And if somebody, for God's sake, stands up and say, you know, perhaps we should back down from a, an extinction level event, all of these fruitcakes just attack the person and try to try to rip them apart. So now being sensible about war is now unacceptable. Margaret. Well, the propaganda has um, is, has been going on for a long time, especially the anti-Russian propaganda, the anti-Putin propaganda, the years of uh, the Russiagate lies. All of it has done its job. And now, and and this year, with all the pro-Ukraine propaganda, everything from the blue and yellow flag to Zelensky speaking at the Grammy Awards, all, all of this uh, has brought us to this situation where once another person who I um, am not fond of, to put it mildly, Elon Musk, <laughs> I do not like the idea of these billionaires um, uh, being involved in a war. He's given technology to the Ukrainians. I, I, there's nothing to like about uh, Elon Musk and the role he plays in society. But again, we see this almost madness that has taken over where it's almost impossible to say something reasonable and sensible about not having a hot war between two superpowers. Uh, but these Ukrainian bots, they're a result of uh, the U.S. state, um, which uh, created them, which defends them. Um, Ukraine is, is basically living off the largesse of the United States, and that is also true for um, these uh, social media uh, agents. There's a uh, piece in the Orinoco Tribune, U.S. rejection of Moscow's offer for peace talks is utterly inexcusable. Uh, uh, last week, Sergei Lavrov stated that Moscow was open to talks with the U.S. or with Turkey on ending the war in Ukraine, claiming that U.S. officials are lying when they say Russia has been refusing peace talks. And then you've got uh, Ned Price coming out and saying that we don't see this, that, that this is posturing. We don't see this as a constructive, legitimate offer to engage in the dialogue and diplomacy. Margaret, if the head of a foreign country that is engaged in a conflict says, I'm willing to sit down and talk about a peace process, I don't know how much clearer the statement can be. Well, the U.S. has backed itself into a corner. There's been miscalculation after miscalculation. And the Biden administration really believed that sanctioning Russia would tank the Russian economy or, or kick Vladimir Putin out of office. And the end result is 
the value of the ruble has gone up and the value of the euro has gone down. It has been an absolute disaster for the entire world. Um, Russia has been uh, with, you know, their ebbs and flows in battle, but pretty much Russia has been winning the entire time, took over uh, uh, four different regions of Ukraine and added them to Russia. And now they've mobilized thousands of more troops and uh, countries allied with Russia are telling their people to leave. So it's about to go down. But we have a uh, government, we have a president who is an ideologue, who was always a hawk. Um, Now he's in over his head. He has surrounded himself with other people who are in over their heads. And this is all a failure of diplomacy. The fact that uh, uh, Russia's foreign secretary, Mr. Lavrov, just comes out and said, you know, that's a lie. That's not something that would have happened before. But we have this group of of incompetent people, all of them in office at the same time. They don't have a plan B. They don't know how to back down. They do, I'm sure that Russia would offer a face-saving solution or would have offered a face-saving solution to this, um, this crisis, far from being this uh, maniac that uh, he's painted as being. Putin has been uh, for for months now. In fact, Russia and Ukraine were meeting. And what did they do? The U.S. sent uh, Boris Johnson, the now ex-prime minister of the U.K., to meet with Zelensky and tell him not to talk to Russia anymore. So um, everything going on now is, is the fault of the United States. And uh, the fact that there is no negotiation, the only sensible way out of this crisis tells you um, a lot, and none of it's good about the nations of the West. And, and Margaret, to that point, you know, if Putin is a maniac, if Putin is a madman, if Putin is a autocrat, and he comes out and he says, I want to sit down and talk peace. Well, Joe Biden, if you think he's bluffing, call his bluff. What you do is you hold a press conference standing on the tarmac in front of Air Force One with the turbine spinning, and you've got Tony Blinken standing next to you, and you say, hey, Vlad, look, we fired up Air Force One. We're on our way to Geneva. Meet me in Geneva on Wednesday. If you want to talk, I'm going to meet you at the corner of 43rd and Broadway, and I want you there on Wednesday at 6 o'clock, and if you're down, I'm down. We're going to get this done. What do you do? Biden, you just say, oh, well, I don't think he's telling the truth and I'm not going to do anything. I mean, that's that's all BS, Margaret. Oh, yes, it is all BS. And um, I, I love the imagery of uh, the meeting on the corner <laughs> in Geneva somewhere. That was great. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. But uh, but you make an excellent point. These people do not know the most basic rudimentary things about diplomacy. Zero. Um, not only can a war end with negotiations, but you could even continue a war with negotiations. You could say, okay, we're going to have a ceasefire, but not really change anything. But these people are committed to their initial goal of using Ukraine to weaken Russia, which they cannot do. So this is just more fantasy foreign policy, and it's a very dangerous 
fantasy as well. Uh, it's I, I cannot think of a, a worse group of people to be in charge of foreign policy at this moment in history. You're absolutely right. They're too stupid to fake it. And of course, the media are their mouthpieces. The New York Times, they don't write anything about Ukraine or anything else without calling the Biden White House first. The media would back them up. They would have a way to back down, but they are too stupid to do it. And the thing about it is they're going to first turn um, Europe very, very shortly in the process of it and turning into some dystopian hellscape. And since they're like our top market for selling stuff, it maybe hasn't dawned on them that we won't be far behind, Margaret. Of course we won't. We have, you know, this country has a little more protection from some of these forces, but that's not going to go on forever. But everything they do is is a desperate act, like like blowing up that pipeline. There's nobody else who did it. Perhaps someone else actually uh, put the bomb or sent the underwater drone there. But this did not happen without the say so of the United States. Uh, and they, the fact, and they have created this crisis in Europe among countries that are supposed to be allies, but in the throes of its crisis, the U.S. doesn't have any allies. It just has vassals and enemies. In fact, to that point, it, it's just interesting how, when you look at what China's doing, when you look at what so many of these other countries are doing, the progress that they're making is all basically economic. And all the, I mean, you look at you look at Venezuela's economy growing at fifteen percent. Now we realize that you know it's coming from from zero, but still, fifteen percent growth is fifteen percent growth. Uh, China with its bullet train and all of these things that these countries are doing to improve the quality of life for the people in their countries. All the United States has is bullets and bombs. We got forty five seconds. You're absolutely right. Biden said that about Putin. He says, all he's got is nukes and oil wells. Well, you know, you could say the same thing for the United States. But look at the growth of the Russian economy. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So he literally did not know what he was talking about, but proceeded with reckless actions as if he did. Margaret Kimberly, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Deadly drone strikes rock central Kiev. Russia targets energy grid. According to the Washington Post, President Vladimir Zelensky condemned today's morning attack on the Ukrainian capital with kamikaze drones, saying Russia terrorizes the civilian population after a residential building was hit. We've heard these proclamations and claims before, so let's try to get some insight into the reality here and turn to our next guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour. 
So it's reported that at least four deaths and multiple injuries have been reported. It's the second week in a row that central Kiev has come under bombardment with Ukrainian officials quickly escalating appeals for Western air defense systems. What's really going on here, Mark? And is it uh, as reported? Yeah, there was definitely some attacks on civilian buildings uh, this weekend. However, they were attacks conducted by the Kiev regime forces against Donetsk and Belgorod. Uh, there some residential buildings uh, were hit there. And in Donetsk City, the civil administration building, uh, a you know local government mm-hmm. uh, building, was uh, uh destroyed uh, in central Donetsk. Uh, The targets that Russia hit uh, in Kiev were a uh, thermal plant, um, and in the center of the city, there is a large building that was hit that for someone who knows nothing uh, about Kiev, or it, I guess it could look like a residential building when uh, a photograph is taken of it from a certain angle. However, even Google Maps will show you that this is uh, the uh, command center of the uh, of Kiev's electrical infrastructure building. All the switching, everything uh, goes on in that building. So it was an attack against infrastructure. Uh, If you'll remember, it is the Kiev regime who set the precedent that that's okay with uh, attacks on electrical infrastructure in Belgorod, uh, in Donetsk, uh, and the attack on the Crimean Bridge. Well, uh, this is Russia continuing to go after infrastructure. There was a lot of uh, inaccurate anti-aircraft fire uh, from Kiev forces. Um, it appears that once again that they attempted to fire off some uh, surface-to-air missiles, uh, at least one of them that went astray, something that is uh, very much a a common feature of of air defense we have seen from the Kiev regime. They're often damaging their own buildings. It is not intentional, right? It is it is collateral damage. Uh, but also the uh, uh, social media channels are full on both sides of lots of video of just hundreds of Kiev regime uh, forces, militia, battalion members sticking out of windows everywhere in downtown Kiev, firing automatic weapons up into the air, trying to um, uh, knock down these um, uh, Iranian-designed geranium um, uh, kamikaze drones. Um, As the Kiev regime uh, uh, claims that, uh, I think we heard something from Aristovich on the matter, that uh, some uh, 30 some drones were um, fired in uh, a swarm. Uh, and I, I think Aristovich, uh, he claims that uh, the uh, Kiev regime's uh, advisor, Alexei Aristovich, often referred to as Zelensky's brain. And I think he said that out of those 35 drones that were fired, that he personally managed to shoot down 150. Right. Yeah. Um, now that's, that's yes, uh, good shooting that, yeah, right there. That, that's, that's, that's Aristovich. Uh, he has <laughs> repeatedly... Uh, claim that Kiev has shot down more than they say. They say that 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 um, 
the uh, Russia has fired. But they're definitely they actually did hit one. They managed to take down uh, one of these drones as far as can be told. You, you know, uh, you but, know, Garland, uh, hang on a second, Mark. That's that's better than the, that's a two two in the bush is better than one in the hand. Right. <laughs> Go ahead, Mark. Oh, yeah, well, one shot out of the window is better than one slamming into your energy infrastructure. I mean, that, that you know, hey, give that one guy that managed to hit one credit uh, where where it's due. But uh, by and large, it's it's clear that Kiev yet has no air defense capability uh, capable of taking them uh, this down. Supposedly, Germany provided um, Ukraine with one of their new Iris T uh, air defense units, but I, it's just one unit, and it is in complete isolation. It it, it can't uh, inter it can't be networked uh, with any of Kiev regime's existing Soviet legacy air defense systems, which actually, in in many cases, at least on paper, uh, look better uh, than the Iris T. Anyway, at least in terms of the more advanced versions of the s300 uh it's a short shorter range system it's better than nothing but uh it's it's not going to stop this and the evidently the production cost for these drones and uh, by all accounts that i have heard uh russia basically bought the tech and rights to produce these drones themselves they're producing them in three different factories in russia up to 50 to 100 of them a day and they are dirt cheap, right? We're talking a couple thousand dollars, which means that uh, we can see a lot more shaheds, or as they're produced locally, geraniums uh, blossoming uh, in the future. Let me, a couple of things I, did, what I want to ask you about. I understand all, we heard a lot about a, um, a Harrison offensive that may have been uh, repelled. And uh, now we're seeing in the news that the Iranians are delivering ballistic missiles to the Russians. And I'm thinking, well, the Russians got plenty of ballistic missiles. I don't know if that's just you – know, anyway, what, what do we need to know about those two stories? Okay, so uh, first of all, about uh, – there, there are there, – first of all, there is still a – basically stalled uh, Ukrainian uh, offensive still going on out of the Krasny Laman area towards the border of Lugansk. Um, it has been ground to a fault. The new Russian defensive lines there uh, uh, appear to be holding. There was a renewed uh, offensive in Kherson. Uh, the reports are that the Kiev regime has gathered a force of up to 60,000 strong. Um, what seems this weekend was either a, a, a um, um, recon in force, right, a attempting to identify uh, Russian positions, make them fire on them in order to uh, find out where the artillery, the lay of the land is, where weak points might be, or possibly a diversionary group. But there were several thousand, and they were pretty well stomped into the ground. And the Ukrainian government has forbidden Ukrainian media or social media to discuss it at all, which seems to indicate that even if this was a recon in force, the idea of recon in force is still to extract most of your forces alive and intact, and that does not appear to be what happened. They were pounded by Russian artillery, thermobaric weapons, rocket systems, aviation, uh, and, and uh, by all accounts, it, it was a real meat grinder. 
I hope this this isn't a, a stupid question. But I, yeah. In in listening to your analysis of this, and you and Scott and and others that that are really paying attention here, and you're giving an analysis that is that is totally different, of course, than the narrative that we're getting from, say, the Washington Post or whatnot. I'm trying to figure out how this conflict continues if. The Ukraine is taking the thumping that it's taking. I mean, I don't care how many weapons you continue or systems you continue to pour in to. I mean, I think Scott said that the that 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 Ukraine will run out of targets before Russia runs out of missiles. So I'm trying to figure out where where this thing goes. I mean, you can only take the beating for so long. Well, um, the does that make does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we know that the Western supply of weapons is slowing down or coming to nothing. CNBC a couple of weeks ago headlined: "The U.S. and Europe are running out of weapons to send Ukraine." They're talking specifically about artillery, artillery shells, but other things as well. Um, uh, Fox News last week: "U.S. poised for slowdown in high-end munitions deliveries to Ukraine." Um, the Kiev regime claims that it is firing some th- – this is according to their own numbers. They're firing some five to 6,000 shells a day. Uh, also, according to them, Russia is firing some fifty to 60,000 <laughs> artillery shells a go. day. Um, and we have heard from Ukrainian commanders say, well, Russia is using their Soviet-era stockpiles, which are essentially infinite. Right. Um, And we have heard from uh, the Royal United Services Institute about the return of industrial warfare and that the Russian military industrial complex is geared up and designed to fight exactly this type of fight. Right. Making artillery shells, things right that that don't require on high end semiconductor chips and the like, Uh, you know, these rocket systems that they use. Meanwhile, the Western military industrial complexes is has been geared for decades towards counterinsurgency, high end aircraft, um, uh, pivoting towards a possible naval and air conflict with China and the Pacific. And they're just not geared up for this type of, of, of conflict. And they have run out of basic things like artillery pieces, artillery shells and the like. So um, if this is if logistics is important and it has been said in military matters that um, amateurs study tactics, that that professionals in military matters look at logistics. Well, uh, the logistics would seem to favor Russia on the side. If we're talking simply manpower. Uh, that has actually been Russia's weakness up till now. The Kiev regime, through a uh, policy of mass force conscription, they say they have a military now of a million men strong. It's probably more like somewhere between 600 and 700,000, but that's still a very significant number when you consider that Russia's intervention force from the beginning was only 150,000. The big game changer there is the calling up the reserves and the capability of putting more of Russia's active duty military um, that is actually a million man strong in the new territories that have been declared part of Russia, Zaporozhye, Kherson, Donetsk, and Lugansk. So that's that's a real game changer there. And um, I think at this point, the Kiev regime would do much better 
if they simply went purely on the defensive uh, and um, uh, retreated to their fortifications and trenches where the manpower that they have would be better spent than wasted charging across open steps in the face of vastly superior Russian fires. Well, we only got about a minute and a half left, but I did want to hear about uh, Dmitry Medvedev warning Israel about supporting Ukraine. Yeah. Okay. So we have heard from a kind of a weird, the Israeli minister for the diaspora. He says it's time for Israel to start arming Ukraine as well. Medvedev said, then you should just declare the um, World War II uh, era uh, West Ukrainian uh, fascist uh, and Holocaust perpetrator Stepan Bandera to be your hero as the Kiev regime has. Um, Well, I don't know if that's going to happen, but I can tell you right away, if Israel starts providing weapons to Ukraine, then Russia will take their hands off the control switches of the S-300 air defense system in Syria. And (laughs) we will start to see Israeli jets finally being shot out of the sky because up till now, Russia has kept control of those systems that it delivered to Syria as part of their effort not to escalate the war there uh, against jihadists um, and the U.S. and Turkey. Uh, to involve Israel. But um, I I think Syria will find themselves in possession of a lot of new toys and possibly Hezbollah as well. And Israel had better keep that in mind. They have up till now. Let's see if the government's view is that of their diaspora minister. Mark Schlaboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. U.S. backs sending international forces to Haiti, according to a draft proposal. A draft U.N. resolution citing instability and violence in Haiti suggests the Biden administration may be willing to participate in a multinational mission that has a military component. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's an associate professor of black studies and anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles, a member of the Black Alliance for Peace and an editor of the Black Agenda Review segment of the Black Agenda Report. Dr. Jamima Pierre, as always, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be back. Thank you. Before we get into the details, today we commemorate the 216th commemoration of the assassination of Jean-Jacques Dessalines, leader of the Haitian Revolution who served under Toussaint L'Overture. How significant is it to you that we are having this conversation about the United States invading Haiti on what is the 216th assassination of uh, the first ruler of an independent Haiti under their 1805 constitution and uh, Dessalines becoming the, I'm sorry, Haiti becoming the first country to, to, to permanently abolish slavery? 
Oh, it's very significant. And I don't think it's by accident. I think <laughs> the last time the, 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 you know, that brought us into this mess is in 2004. That's when the U.S., France, and Canada um, uh, successfully uh, uh, made a coup d'etat against Haiti's uh, popularly elected president. And that was in 2004. I think um, these people know exactly what they're doing. They pick the times and they pick the dates. Um, and, and for anyone who thinks that they're bumbling, no, they know exactly what they're doing. And Jean-Jacques Dessalines is the one that actually proclaimed um, Haiti independent, proclaimed um, the end of slavery, the, the only, con- you know, our constitution is the only constitution that outlaw- outlaws discrimination. And one of the key things I, I, I wonder if your listeners know is that in the Haiti's constitution that Jean-Jacques Dessalines um, helped draw up, it said no white man... Uh, never, it says in quote, never again shall a colonist or a European set his foot upon this territory with the title of master or proprietor, right? And so that was a fundamental basis of the Haitian constitution, which the U.S. government changed when they occupied Haiti in 1915 to allow um, white people to own, be able to own land in Haiti. So they know exactly what they're doing. And, and it's really significant that they would try to completely snuff out Haiti's sovereignty on this day. And it is interesting, as the United States plays this role about, oh, we've got to protect the independence of Ukraine, a sovereign nation. Oh, Taiwan deserves their independence. Why China's trying to steal their independence. Where all this uh, uh, talk about independence and sovereignty, as the U.S. has never allowed Haiti to have independence and sovereignty, and they have uh, usurped their ability to chart their own course at the barrel of a gun. Dr. Pierre. Yes, definitely. Um, you know, and and part of it is like Haiti's going to continue taking its sovereignty. They're they're just trying to snuff it out <laughs> over and over again. And you know, we see the hypocrisy of not just the U.S. but the entire so-called rules-based international order and their white supremacist organizations. We see the U.N. working in cahoots with the U.S. Um, taking positions that it should not be taking. Um, we see an undemocratic international system that, you know, that that controls the media and that that gets everyone to believe that there's something going on. And the fact, the same way that you have this amazing psychological and PR warfare with the Ukraine war about, you know, the fact, you know, the idea that Ukraine is winning, um, Russia is losing, or the fact that, you know, um, uh, uh, Putin um, went in unprovoked. We can see the same kind of massive um, PR machine um, creating, constructing Haitians as these boogeymen, these gangs um, that need to be um, put down and pacified. If you look at today, the Globe and Mail had a, a story saying that, you know, Haiti needs to be under UN tutelage for the next 10 years. The BBC had this report about the gang violence and the most racist accompanying picture. So you see the setup for demonizing these people for wanting to keep their sovereignty and and the the entire white West, all the apparatuses, their media and so on, they're all in on it to, to allow this, uh, to follow the U S in, in, in bringing this military invasion of the country. Haiti Liberté has a piece with down with Ariel, no to invasion. And there are protests breaking out and they have been ongoing in all corners of the country, all corners of the island. And this just makes me wonder. In fact, it says here several thousand people demonstrated in Port-au-Prince, for example. 
if the United States were to send in a or to back a military force, what do you think the reaction of the Haitians would be? And this, to me, seems as though it would turn into just a brutal, bloody mess. It will be a bloody mess because what Haitians are saying is that 2022 is not like 2004, where they could just come in, where the military came in and took over. Um, You know, let's remember the U.S. has allowed thousands and thousands of high grade military um, um, uh, uh, type uh, um, arms you know, guns and, and, and machine guns and uh, ammunition into the country um, because they wanted to establish this idea of a gang violence. But now you have a lot of armed young people um, going against, you know, a, an armed foreign force that they did not want, that an illeg- illegitimate pres- um, by, um, prime minister asked for against the wishes of the people. This is going to be bloody and they're going to end up killing a lot of Haitian people. Um, but that doesn't mean Haitians are going to stop, you know, because they're like, this is the last time after what the UN has done. This is the last time that they can come back and send their military. So I would think that Biden would think twice about, you know, pushing for this because it's going to be bloody um, and, and, and it's going to be blood on both sides. And they need to be prepared for that. And let me also add the 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 heart and the sentiment here. This this reminds me of a discussion Minister Farrakhan had when the United States was talking about going into Iraq. And he said to the United States, he says, you've never you've never fought a soldier with the heart of a Muslim. He said, you're fighting God and a man. And, and when I see what's happening here, and that's one of the reasons why I brought the name Dessaline into the conversation was because— <laughs> Even I'd say I'll say this, even if the Haitians didn't have guns and the United States came in armed, they'd lose the fist fight that that every Haitian would meet them at the beach and start kicking behind and and beat them and beat them into the ocean. I, I, I just don't see the Haitian people being down for this. Yeah, I think everybody is so angry. But remember, everybody knows everybody suffered. The Haitians suffered with troops. On, their, on the ground, brutalizing, raping, and murdering them for 17 years, from 2004 to 2017, or 13 years, sorry, 13 years. And then a UN office that, like today, it's the Helen Lalib, who everybody calls the racist colonizer, is the person that's presenting Haiti's case in front of the UN. Who gives this person, makes this person in charge of Haiti? Right. These people have no legitimacy in Haiti and Haitians are very, very, very angry. You have protests, thousands of people in the streets in every major city of the country. These people are he's saying, don't we don't want these foreigners. We don't want invaders. And they're going to go ahead and do it. And they're demonizing them because you notice what's happening is they're legitimate, large scale protests. How is the Western media presenting this as gangs? Right. So. The idea is that you saw the BBC racist BBC picture. You have this young Haitian man with a face mask holding a machete <laughs> and a bottle of fuel. It makes it seem like everybody's, uh, you know, the racist tropes of Haitians. And so the the Western world is going to be happy, including some, some people from the global South, that we're putting down these gangs. But if you present the entire country as gangs, it allows them to go in and shoot at people. But these Haitians are not having it. And and I hope they know this. When they tell you that 2022 is not 2004, I hope they're listening. 
and you know the thing about it is the the, the claim that they're coming in to help the Haitians. I think the 2010 earthquake really showed everything because they came in. They brought disease. Literally, they brought disease to the Haitian people. They brought cholera to the Haitian people. And then they raised a fortune and kept it, Dr. Jamima. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's remember the, 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 the Red Cross, and I hope no one ever gives the Red Cross any money. The Red Cross raised, you know, almost a billion, you know, half a billion dollars for Haiti, and they built six houses, right? And so everybody made a come up. Everybody made a killing off of Haitian misery during the earthquake. But remember, yeah, you're right. And I have to remind people that it was the UN forces that dumped their fecal matter in the main river source of the central part of Haiti that led to the cholera disease that um, that killed um, up to 40,000 people and sickened a million. And so the Haitians know this. There are all these UN babies that 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 were that were had after the rape of young girls. Um, the UN took six years to apologize for bringing cholera, and they never paid restitution. All these the, uh, 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 groups had to sue the UN to, to 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 take care of all the kids they left behind. This is a brutal occupying force. Uh, hey, the the UN represents nothing but misery and pain for the Haitian people, and we have to remember that. And 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 you have all these people speaking on behalf of Haiti that are not Haitian. And that don't look like the rest of us. And and we have to really put an end to this. And I'm glad we're talking about this because this is absolutely unacceptable. Who's backing Haiti? So because most of what you read, it it's, it's as though, and I, no pun intended, that the Haitians are on an island. And and that, <laughs> and that, that you know, I, I don't, I'm asking this because I'm not hearing it which doesn't mean it isn't happening. It means I'm not hearing it. Um, it's not. Yeah, go ahead. Go no, ahead. You got it. No, you got no, it. You, you're not hearing it because it's not happening. You know, the, the, the reality is you have certain groups, you have activist groups, both in the U.S. and in the Caribbean and even in the Dominican Republic saying no invasion. If here we have, you know, our vocal voices, the Black Alliance for Peace, which actually wrote to the Russian and Chinese and, um, embassies today to ask them to vote no. Um, against this resolution. And, and and so we're one of the few people, one of the few groups that do that. These governments, you know, the members of the Caribbean community, they all, they've all fallen for the Western discourse around Haiti. And they are, you know, part of that is the world already, the image of Haiti for the past 200 years has been one of like savagery and, and chaos. And these black people are so crazy and violent. So they all buy into it, including the black countries. These African, there's no, there's not one African nation that is standing up to saying no to, to this invasion. No, no Caribbean nation, no black nation, none of these leftist governments. And, to, and I need to call out the leftist governments because AMLO, the president of Mexico, is actually part of writing this resolution for an invasion because they're coping holders with the U.S. And so tell me about the leftist governments where you have AMLO and you have Lula, who's about to win. Lula was the one that led the military wing of the interv- of, of the invasion in 2004. And so Haiti is by itself. Haiti has always been by itself. But, you know, the, the good thing is we have the heart, we have the spirit, and, you know, we're going to win. I mean, that's the reality. And no matter what they do, they, you know, it's been 200 years. <laughs> it's it's going to be continued fighting. Dr. Jamima Pierre, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. And folks, you don't want to mess with Haitians. I'm a, <laughs> you don't want to do that. It's not a good idea. Uh, no, it's not. We, we greatly appreciate uh, your time, and we look forward to having you back. 
Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is a really interesting piece in Asia Times entitled G20 to Showcase China's High-Speed Rail. Jakarta and Beijing plan to demonstrate their partnership in making transportation more efficient. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's retired from a global advisory services firm where he advised clients on their China strategies and business operations. He was educated at MIT, Stevens Institute, and Santa Clara University. He's the founder and former managing director of International Strategic Alliances. He's currently a board member of the Freshfields, a novel green building platform, and he's the author of this piece, George Koo. George, as always, welcome back. Thank you, Wilmer. Your piece, China to Showcase at the G20, transportation, making transportation more efficient. And you you say that more than 1,300 journalists have already registered to cover the G20 summit the in, in, in Bali. The pre-summit buzz seems to be focusing on such questions as, will President Biden attend? If he does, will he meet with Russian President Putin? If they meet, will Zelensky be invited to sit in? And then you write, If so, will there be any substantive outcome, so on and so forth? The Western media missed mentioning an unprecedented event that will take place at the G20. Indonesian President Joko Widodo will be taking his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, for a ride on Indonesia's first bullet train. You've got China exporting technology. You've got China exporting bullet trains and the United States exporting bullets. George Koo. Well, I, I kind of rushed the rushed to post this because I could have waited until we get closer to the G20 summit because that summit is going to take place uh, in the middle of November. But the reason I pushed it is because I'm pretty confident the mainstream media in the West is, is going to get a short shrift about this high-speed rail partnership. And I want to differentiate how China approaches things versus how the U.S. and the West approach things and, and get that out there early, especially because we are in the middle of the semiconductor lockdown that Biden has, um, has presented. So I'm sure we'll get to that, but let me just quickly summarize. When Indonesia talked about high-speed rail way back in 2008, Japan put in the bid, and they were the only game in town. But Indonesia government ham and haw because it was going to be very expensive, and they didn't bite until 2017. And lo and behold, by 2017, China was, had already built and run the biggest high-speed rail network in the world 
and they put in a bid, and they surprised Japan and and won the bid. And the reason they won the bid was they're willing to assume cost overruns, they're willing to share technology, and they're willing to set up a joint venture with Indonesia so that if this thing comes off well, both sides will, will, will enjoy the dividend. Japan was not interested in doing any of that. And back in 2008, when China approached Japan and, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, France, they were the only ones that had high-speed rail technology. Neither of them was willing to cooperate with China because they didn't think China could do it um, by themselves. And and so they turned it down, and Japan went, and China rather went ahead and developed the um, um, the high-speed rail technology that is superior to the Japan's Shinkansen and superior to the French technology. So I, I was very anxious to po- rush to point that out because I think the same type of outcome is going to come back and bite the U.S. in insofar as the semiconductor technology is concerned. Which uh, takes us to our next article, Chip War Policy Hurting U.S. Firms More Than China. New Commerce Department chip and equipment bans against China are hitting U.S. semiconductor company shares the hardest. What do we need to know about this, George? Well, that was an excellent, excellent article written by um, the uh, co-publisher of Asia Times, David Goldman. And it spells out in chapter and verse why the U.S. is going to be cutting off its own nose to spite its face. Because the first level of companies that's going to be hurt by this total sanction, total ban on semiconductor trade, are going to be the U.S. companies because China represents by far the largest market for equipment, for chips, and for everything else. So they will lose a good percentage of sale, as much as 40% of their total revenue, which means they're not gonna have the kind of profit to reinvest, to keep become competitive, and to keep up. So very likely we'll see the high-speed rail example replicated a few years down the road. What's even more unreasonable, and this could lead us to the next subject, is that Biden or the Department of Commerce is demanding any U.S. citizens in China working on semiconductors to do either cease and desist or give up their citizenship. Wow. Well, well, and, and that was part of the DOC mandate, and there's about... They've identified 40-some names already. Well, guess what? If those people cease and desist, they will become instantly unemployed because when they come back to the U.S., the U.S. folks are going to look at them and say, we don't need you. We're perfectly set. We have our own team, etc." So you're practically forcing them to renounce their U.S. citizen. And we're seeing that uh, all over. We're seeing some of the best and brightest of Chinese scientists and, and professors and whatnot leaving the U.S. and going back to China because they can't stand this um, persecution that they're experiencing, the investigations that they're going under, the legal bills that they're facing, which could be as much as 
uh, a million or more legal bill. Can you imagine that? One of them I heard had to put a second mortgage in this house, and he's likely to lose the house because of his defense bill. And we are so unilateral about this that when the U.S. government proves to be wrong, wrongful prosecution, they just walk away. There's no downside for what they do. They don't have to pay a penalty. They don't have to compensate. We are acting like a totalitarian state far more than what we accuse China of. I'll just say this. We ain't acting. We are a totalitarian state. <laughs> but but also, also, George, you know, going back to the high-speed rail discussion, that was a practical example of China's win-win yes. for, foreign policy, win-win strategy. Yes. And, that, and to show that that's not just rhetoric, that that's actually how China is engaging in business. Yeah, and, and as, as I credit the um, commentator from Taiwan who, who pointed out, the natural extension of the high-speed rail that runs through Java, which is the most populated island in Indonesia, it can run through Singapore, run north through Malay, Malaysia and Thailand, and go to China and link up with the rest of the high-speed rail that will go through Central Asia and, event, and to Europe. So what does that mean? It means wherever high-speed rail goes, trade is going to flourish, and economic development will flourish all along the way, and everybody's going to have a piece of the action and will take advantage of, of the, uh, the infrastructure that uh, is going to be put in place. It's not going to be that overnight, but all the local uh, governments have to see the benefit and be willing to put in their um, their share of, of a contribution and labor and investment. And I think over 140-some countries have expressed interest in participating in this. In the meantime, the number of countries that's interested in aligning with the, with the U.S. And, um, and arming Taiwan, which is another subject we can talk about, it's it's just a handful. It's you know it barely covers both hands of your uh, both fing- the all the fingers in both hands. What do you think about the uh, the speech by President Xi? I think it was interesting. He turned down the volume. It seems to me a bit on this all this yelling that uh, China's about to um, invade Taiwan at any minute. Your thoughts? China never said that they're willing to they're ready to invade Taiwan at a moment's notice. And what Xi Jinping said, I think, is actually very strong if Washington is listening. First of all, he said the Taiwan problem is a problem to be dealt with by the people, the Chinese people. Nobody else have a right to participate or interfere. And we will, while we want to settle this peacefully between us and the people in Taiwan, also Chinese people, by the way, we're um, not ruling out force if we, if we have to. So it's a very clear warning to the U.S. that if you mess around, eventually you're going to bite on more than you can choose. And that this Taiwan Relations Act that's uh, going through Congress right now, supposedly, and I haven't seen the details because it's still going through the process, 
is going to declare, recognize the sovereignty of Taiwan as an independent country. If that happens, that is a flat-out open declaration of war between the United States and China. How will China respond? Well, I have no clue as to how they will. But one speculation that I think they will have, they will do, is not actually to invade Taiwan, but to take out certain U.S. naval vessels, especially those that might be bringing the arms supply to Taiwan, because basically China will say, if you want to start something, we're ready to, to, to respond in kind. Time to take Kim Jong-un's nuclear threats seriously. New North Korean nuclear use law aims to get an upper hand in any way, in any war, in latest bid to scare U.S. forces off the peninsula. How does this factor into what you just articulated? Well, I think in in the case of what North Korea is doing, and, and another commentator at Taiwan pointed out, North Korea doesn't really have the wherewithal to go shoot 20-some missiles in, in, the, in a short period of a few months. And therefore, the, he thinks the Russians are behind it and is supplying the wherewithal for North Korea to do this. And the, the idea for North Korea to do this is to start another front for the, for the benefit of the United States. And that would be the, the North Korean, the Korean uh, Peninsula. I also have mentioned in the past many times, and this is something that the Washington, uh, I think it was the Post, was the Washington Post or whatever, whatever piece it was, failed to point out mm-hmm. during the during the end of Clinton uh, uh, term of office, they almost had a deal with North Korea, so that North Korea would not go any further and develop mm-hmm. an atomic bomb. And the deal was torn, thrown away by George W. when he came into the office, and he declared North Korea one of the axes of evil. And he basically said, F you, North Korea. And three years later, North Korea developed their atomic bomb. So they did not become a nuclear nation until the United States reneged on whatever they agree on. And now, as, as typical, we accuse the other side <laughs> of being aggressor, even though we provoke and, and made them into one. George Koo, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that. Look forward to having you back. Thank you, gentlemen. Nice to be with you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Middle East Eye reports Riyadh will release al-Qudari and deport him to Amman. An official source in Hamas told Arabi 21 that the Saudi authorities will release the representative of Hamas, Mohammed al-Qudari, who was arrested and sentenced to 15 years in prison, but his sentence then was reduced to six years. What does all of this really mean? Well, 
For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an award-winning journalist and analyst based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me once more. So in an exclusive statements to uh, Arabi 21, the or Arabi 21, the source said that Al-Khaduri will be deported to Amman after his release, which was supposed to be today, but it's been delayed till tomorrow. There are some procedural issues. Uh, explain, if you could, please, the significance of this and what does it mean, if anything, that he's being deported to Amman? Well, this is uh, a very important step. Uh, in the year 2020, the uh, Yemeni uh, leadership of Ansarullah, the government in Sana'a, uh, offered uh, it to have a prisoner exchange with the Saudi government. And uh, in in the top of the list that the Yemenis were asking for release were uh, representatives and members of Hamas uh, that have been arrested in the Saudi kingdom. Um, so that tells you, number one, the loyalty that Yemen has to the liberation of Palestine. And, of course, the Yemeni people uh, have, have exhibited some of the most uh, courageous support for the Palestinian people. Uh, it, uh, as, and as you mentioned, uh, Mr. Al-Khudari, his wife and his son were all arrested by the Saudis uh, his wife was just released a few days ago. She's already made it to Amman, Jordan. And now, as you're seeing here, Al-Khudari and his son will be released uh, by t- t- tonight or tomorrow morning. Uh, this, these are the first of the, uh, you know, this comes after a day of the Yemeni delegation that was in Riyadh negotiating the exchange of prisoners of war uh, left Riyadh yesterday. So we're seeing a huge achievement, number one, for uh, the Yemeni government of Sana'a to not only be able to release Yemeni prisoners in Saudi, but also negotiate on behalf of other uh, oppressed people that are in the jails of Saudi Arabia. In terms of the final destination of Al-Khudari being Jordan, um, now this this we have seen over the last six months a shift in the Jordanian government's position as uh, is as it saw right now Syria opening up finally to Hamas after the betrayal in the Syrian war. Uh, There will be a delegation of Hamas leadership coming to Damascus in the next uh, week or so, where they will be uh, apologizing for their mistakes and, and opening up relations. So it seems like Jordan is opening up also in order to have some influence of the, over Hamas if Hamas returns to Damascus as expected in the next week and a half. Uh, there's been, of course, demonstrations almost on a weekly basis in Jordan in support of Palestine and the government of Jordan uh, is trying in, in different ways to show that is uh, doing work in support of uh, the Palestinian people. Let me ask you this. What is the state of the ceasefire between the Saudis and Yemen? The last I heard, it had fallen. They hadn't negotiated a new one. But it seems like um, they're negotiating. And and I'm not hearing anything about a lot of fighting and bombing. But what's the current the current state of that? 
Yeah, this is uh, actually, uh, you know, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, the ceasefire ended uh, and people were expecting either a return to full hostilities and and the the Sana'a government attacking infrastructure in the United Emirates and the Saudi Kingdom. But that didn't happen, although the threats were made. And what we can see clearly right now is that the regional and international tectonic shifts that are happening with the collapse of the American empire uh, are affecting directly what's happening in Yemen. So right now the Saudis are not attacking Yemen. The Yemenis are not attacking back, although there's still a siege. Uh, we see the Americans threatening the, the, the Saudis of cutting all their uh, military supplies because of uh, OPEC uh, raising the price on uh, international oil prices. Uh, and that tells us the everything there is connected. If the Saudis want to be able to exit from under American hegemony, uh, then they must uh, end all the conflicts regionally that they are involved in that force them to beg for weapons from the Americans. And of course, Yemen uh, is the cornerstone of any peace uh, on the Arabian Peninsula. Two things going back to uh, al-Hudari. One, talk about his health because it's reported that he's been in deteriorating health due to cancer. And then going back to his going to Jordan with uh, King Abdullah II being, I, I thought, very loyal to the interests of the United States. Um, it, does Am I wrong in, 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 in where... Abdullah II's uh, loyalties or allegiances lie, and I just find it odd that he's going to Jordan. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, Al Khudari is a Jordanian Palestinian, so it is his okay. country. Okay, uh, okay, and and many many people that are in the leadership of Hamas uh, are basically dual citizens, Palestinian uh, and Jordanian. Uh, Jordan itself is like 70% of the population um, can trace their, their uh, you know, bloodline back to Palestine. I didn't know that. Since 1948. Okay. So it is, it is, that's why the Zionists keep on talking about Jordan as the, the real Palestine. Um, you know, and, and they try to undermine Jordan and make it the, the solution for a two-state solution. Uh, of course, the... The, the Hashemites are uh, beholden by Anglo powers. They, they were brought into power by the British uh, in World War I and have been protected since uh, in, in their position. But there is a lot of pressures inside Jordan, especially right now that the uh, government uh, of Jordan is in chaos. It's been three different governments in three different years. And there's, uh, uh, you know, demonstrations basis, uh, uh, and especially on Fridays in support of uh, Palestine. Uh, there was also, of course, uh, the issue of uh, Jerusalem and the holy sites in Jerusalem, where uh, Jordan uh, have the status and the king of Jordan has the status of the protector of the holy sites uh, in Jerusalem, the Christian and Muslim sites. And as we see on a daily basis, the Zionist uh, Jewish supremacist colonists are invading 
the the Aqsa Mosque and they're beating up the security guards and the workers uh, at the holy site who are all employees of the Jordanian government. Uh, so the king of Jordan is under a lot of pressure uh, because his reputation as the protector of the holy sites is being dragged in the mud by his Zionist allies. Uh, and once in a while, as we see here, the Jordanian government makes moves that uh, allows them to at least tell their their population that they're doing something. Uh, interesting story in Orinoco uh, Tribune. Jaffa may become the next Sheikh Jarrah as Palestinians are pushed out. Palestinians in Jaffa say the Israeli government is attempting to displace them in what residents allege is ethnic cleansing through real estate. What, what do you know about that, um, that, that issue? Well, Jaffa is uh, one of the oldest uh, cities in Palestine. It was built by the Canaanites. Uh, you know, Jaffa meaning the place where the the, the waves and the rocks clash. It's a rocky, uh, so it, it's a reference to beauty and strength. Uh, and of course, Yaffa was one of the main uh, original targets of depopulation and ethnic cleansing during the 1947-48 war uh, of the creation of the Zionist colony. And it was emptied uh, of its inhabitants where the Zionists threw barrel bombs. Uh, they, they, they call what's happening in Syria barrel bombs, but actually rolled down barrel bombs down the hill from Tel Aviv up on the hill into the Palestinian neighborhoods in 1947-48 and, and, you know, killed and, you know, thousands of uh, the inhabitants. There is a small population of Palestinian citizens of uh, Israel that are still living in Yaffa, specifically around the old city, the small parts of the old city that were not destroyed by the Zionists. And right now, the Zionists are trying to take over all these historic buildings uh, and push out the Palestinians that have had ownership of these buildings for hundreds of years and turn the area into a tourist trap uh, that is, uh, you know, owned by uh, Zionist colonists. And, uh, you know, the Palestinian uh, citizens of Yaffa are resisting. Um, they were out in the streets every time, uh, the, you know, any clashes happened in Gaza and the West Bank. And they will continue to try to defend their uh, homes and their uh, mosques and churches. There's an interesting piece. Uh, can any Lebanon-Israel maritime deal be trusted? Uh, there is a sense of optimism. in Le This is from the cradle. There is a sense of optimism in Lebanon over the possibility of signing a maritime agreement with Israel that would enable the extraction of gas from Lebanese territorial waters, which could help lead the country out of its dire financial crisis. Your thoughts on what's, what lies before us? Is, are there signals of conflict ahead? It is uh, hard to tell, really, uh, and it's also very hard to trust anything that the Zionists uh, sign on. Um, I don't think the Zionists have, have you know, ever delivered on any agreement they signed with anybody, just like the United States. Uh, you know, the uh, cabinet, as they call it, the, the miniature government uh, of uh, Israel already approved uh, there is a few challenges in court. Uh, there is the threat also from Netanyahu and his bloc that if they win the election in early November, that they will rip apart this deal. Uh, so although on the side of Lebanon, 
um, the all levels of governments have already approved this uh, deal, uh, it is not guaranteed that it will come to fruition. There's also the, the issue of extraction of uh, gas and oil from the Lebanese uh, waters. The contracts have been signed originally with a consortium that includes Total, the French company, and uh, the Italian and Russian um, oil companies. Uh, the Russians had to withdraw when the sanctions fell on both Russia and uh, Lebanon uh, years ago, but now more so since the war in Ukraine. So it's now uh, incumbent on Total, the French company, to deliver on extraction within the next six months, uh, because that's when the contract of Total that was signed years ago is coming going to come to an end. And if uh, in those next six months there is no extraction of gas or oil, uh, it will be uh, open for bidding. And there will be already we hear here in Lebanon uh, that there will be a, a national uh, sovereign fund uh, that will be created to own uh, uh, the extraction company and the uh, profits that they will be put in uh, perpetuity in to, to the service of the Lebanese people. So there will be no, um, you know, looting of these resources and the funds that come out of them by corrupt politicians. Things are up in the air still, even though that uh, these, uh, this agreement was signed from the Lebanese side, we don't have a full guarantee from Israel yet. And as things uh, you know, develop here in, in Western Asia and all the battlefronts. Uh, we don't know how that's going to affect uh, this deal. When I hear the words national sovereign fund, I all I think about is the United States uh, stealing money from the Russian fund, United States stealing money from the Afghan fund, the United States stealing money from the Venezuelan fund. <laughs> so I just wonder where those funds will be held because the United States has a way of laying claim to where the Iranian funds. Anyway, Leif Maroof, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And as always, we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT reports thousands march in Paris over cost of living. Massive crowds of protesters took to the streets of Paris yesterday to voice discontent over the rising cost of living. It comes as the country's largest trade union continues a refinery strike that has closed gas stations across the country. What are we to make of all of this? Well, for insight. Let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist, analyst, and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Daniel Lazar, as always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. 
So the protest was organized by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the former presidential candidate and leader of the left-wing France Unbowed Party. A number of other leftist parties and organizations participated with some calling upon President Macron to take stronger action against climate change. Uh, Daniel, I, I keep looking at what's happening in France, what's happening in Germany, uh, what's happening, I think, in Bulgaria, and winter hasn't even set in yet. I, and what's happening in, 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 in London? Dan, I can't see this getting better for these European governments anytime soon, especially when I believe when you look at their histories of reaction and protest, when they start protesting, they don't play. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, yeah, yeah, I think that they, I, I can only foresee a deepening crunch. I can't see any way out of this. And I and, and therefore I see a greater governmental helplessness uh, as the war in the Ukraine drags on and inflation intensifies and greater public anger and therefore greater political instability. You know, Dan, uh, the other thing is, I think I see um, something coming soon. You know, certainly we see what's happening. The, the Russians are building up their military. They're, um, we're hearing in the last few days a number of, all of not, not a number, all of the Russian allies in Ukraine are like um, getting out of their embassies ASAP. Certainly appears as though heavy action is about to happen. And it's going to be interesting to watch these events come together as there could quite possibly and maybe even likely be some kind of a military turning point in Ukraine at the same time cold weather hits and hard times really hit. And it looks, to be quite frank, like like the U.K.'s um, economy is on the verge of collapse. But all those things together, Dan, what do we have? We have a deepening emergency. I mean, we have a we have a events are spiraling out of control. Uh, the pressures are intensifying, uh, and some kind of a, a crisis, big crisis, is brewing. That seems clear. I mean, there's a, I mean, there's a sense that things are breaking out there. And this this statement in this RT piece to me is incredibly telling because they're talking about who's leading that 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 Melishon was was organizing the peace or organizing the the protest and this sentence however economic concerns are first and foremost on the minds of protesters quote it's not the march of Mr Melishon the LFI leader told France TV it's a march of the people who are hungry who are cold and who want to be better Paid. This takes me to the line, I saw the people move or I saw the people moving, therefore <laughs> I knew I had to lead them. Right. So, Mel- right. so Melanchon is seeing that he's got his finger out the window and he knows which way the wind is blowing and he's setting his sail in the direction of the wind. Yeah, and Melanchon has been very cautious, by the way, uh, when it comes to criticizing the war in the Ukraine. So, uh, so yeah, he definitely is 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 is, is sitting tight, uh, watching which way the wind is blowing, and and responding accordingly. But uh, yeah, but the, the pressures are on in Germany, in Italy, in in Britain, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and in the U.S. By the way. I mean, the uh, the U.S. shows, you know, deepening unhappiness with the with the the economy and a perceptible shift toward the Republicans with the uh, with the the midterms just three weeks away. And to that point, what happens with that rail strike 
since the mechanics union decided they weren't going to buy into Biden's plan, the the U.S. rail strike is still on the horizon. And, and Garland, do you tack into the wind? Is that is that the proper terminology? Yeah, you use the wind to tack. Okay, tacking uh, okay. is going back and okay. forth using the wind. Yeah, uh, tacking and trolling, right? Yeah. Okay, it's different. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, Dan. Yes, uh, the pressures are building everywhere. Uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, there isn't a single government that's not in trouble. I don't think in the, on the in, on the entire face of the earth. I mean, from Tunisia to Haiti uh, to the to the EU, the US, uh, Russia itself, Iran as well. I mean, I mean, all these governments are are coming under huge public pressure, and they're all buckling at the knees. Uh, this this economic crisis is is, is heating up. It's very powerful. It's going to have very powerful effects. Uh, and we're just going into it. Let me throw something at you, Dan. Throw a curveball. That's a possibility. Okay. We got, we're starting to see all over the news, Obama, all over the news I'm seeing, Obama saying, hey, you're going a little, leaning a little too hard into this Trump stuff and saying the Democrats need to talk about prices and people feeding their families and things of that nature. I saw that on Fox and CNN this morning, right? There's an article in Newsweek. The neocons and the woke left are joining hands and leading us to woke war three. And that's David Sachs a venture capitalist. People in very powerful positions are starting to think, I'm rich. I like to live like this. I don't want a nuclear war. I want to find a way to put my, you know, transhumanism, put my body in a machine or something. Is it possible that the neocons are pushing it too far and they could be the ones that fall? Dan. Oh, I, 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 have, I have no doubt. And quickly, Dan, I mean, the, uh, wait, quickly. Yes. And what I have found, the neocons traditionally push the bit too far. The contract with America. Exactly. Go, go ahead. And they get, wiped, they, get and they wiped, wiped out. They get wiped out in November, and everybody's looking at uh, 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 Biden saying, you've killed this party, and the neocons killed this party. Dan? Yes, I think I think the neocons are getting ahead of them, uh, themselves. I think the war in the Ukraine is not popular. I mean, first of all, Americans are tired of war. All the glory has gone out of war. Uh, the Americans are just sick and tired of it, tired of it. They it feel like they've had a had a low grade uh, flu for the last 20 odd years. They want they want out of the stuff. They don't they don't, they don't have any confidence in, in, in Biden's management of the of the conflict. And they believe and they or they sense quite rightly that the that the economic sanctions that were supposed to bring Russia to its knees are having the exact opposite effect, where Russia is 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 riding out the economic storms in relatively good health, and the the West, especially the EU, is is taking a real blow. Um, and and I don't see any end to this process. That's 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 the important point, and I don't I don't think voters do either. Oh, you know, there was an article in The Economist that said something like the U.K. Gov uh, economy is crashing, going into a recession, and Russia's coming out of one. That's in The Economist. Right. A, a very, very conservative, to say the least. Yeah, exactly. Uh, German health. Here's another data point. German health minister warns of hospital closures. Berlin must act quickly and drastically 
To avoid health care shortfall, many hospitals in Germany may be forced into bankruptcy due to soaring energy prices and inflation unless the government comes up with some sort of assistance. This is another data point, uh, Dan. It's not yeah. looking good for the home team. No, it's not looking good at all. I mean, first of all, I think I think there are, the, the the one thing to keep in mind is that is that a, inflation is increasing. Mm-hmm. It's sur- it's surging, and the central bankers, led by the U.S. Federal Reserve, are surging as well. In other words, they they are applying they are they're they're applying the brakes more and more strongly. Um, and that when that happens, you have this fantastic Baroque financial structure that has been built up over the last 12 to 14 years as a consequence of negative real interest rates. I mean, Wall Street has engaged in an orgy of speculation uh, and they, they've, they have leveraged themselves to the hilt. Uh, and so the, the, the danger from the ruling class's point of view, is that when the when the as the Fed applies the brakes, this entire structure will grow more and more rickety, and we'll be facing another two thousand eight. And I'm I by the way, and I am convinced that is correct. Oh yeah, and they're the ones that lose, you know, a trillion. I I put it like this. I'm not losing a hundred billion dollars, but Bill, but 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 uh, but Bill Gates might. Let me ask you this: since we're uh, uh, on this, uh, Liz Truss, yeah, British uh, MPs demand Liz Truss resign. I got to hear your thoughts, Dan, on this Liz Truss uh, debacle. Well, I, I, I think Liz Truss has, has kind of, sort of, already resigned. <laughs> I mean, essentially, essentially, Jeremy Hunt. Who's the new chancellor of the of the exchequer has taken the has taken the reins of power and he is becoming the de facto prime minister and uh, and Liz Truss is, is somewhere in hiding you know whimpering in the closet I think she literally has hours left um, and so uh, so I think you know Hunt is the is the is the new power he's assuring the Bank of England that the economy is now in safe hands uh, he's sh- <laughs> assuring the international markets of the same thing uh, and the less Liz says the better uh, and I think that she is three fourths out the door. So they don't really have to get rid of her. They can just say go sit in the corner and we well, got they this. Have, in. They, I mean, I must say, I mean, there's there's a, there's a lot to criticize in the British system, but it really moves with with remarkable efficiency when it has to, you know. And you know, I mean, I mean, uh, quasi Quartang was out in 38 days, a, a near record. The only chancellor who beat him was some guy who died of a heart attack after 30 days in office. So he's the second shortest lived chancellor of the Exchequer. Yeah, in history, uh, he was out. Liz Truss is falling at the door. Jeremy Hunt has been brought in to to put the house back in order. Uh, and the uh, and the and the, the 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 conservative government now knows it's got to you know it's got to win back the confidence of the Bank of England and the financial markets, and it can only do so by imposing really stringent austerity. So you know so. So Britain's going to go through a crunch. And and the whole purpose of the crunch is to determine who fits, who foots the bill. Will it be the upper classes, the city of London, or will it be the working class? Will they have to pay by seeing their wages shrink, seeing their, you know, their their living standards shrink, seeing their benefits 
fall or be canceled altogether. So that is the big question that they are facing. Uh, you got to make sure everybody go online on YouTube. There's a great uh, uh, YouTube channel called Can Liz Trust Outlist uh, Outlast a Lettuce? And they have an actual head of lettuce there <laughs> and a picture of Liz Trust. And they're going to see if the lettuce rots before Liz Trust is gone. Roughly the same IQ. I'm putting my money on uh, on trust. I think she'll be gone sooner. <laughs> two two minutes, quasi uh, uh, with her firing her ex-checker, quasi Quartung. Is that a sign that she's actually on her way out and w- wanting to be sure that a man of color is not in a position to become the next prime minister? First, first of all, I, I, I actually have not seen the color in, uh, issue introduced here at all. Uh, I mean, Quasi uh, is—he's uh, a child of Ghanaian immigrants, uh, but he had—they were very successful. He went to the most elite schools in uh, in Britain. He went to uh, to uh, Cambridge, I believe, and and where he did quite brilliantly, I must add. Um, uh, but by the way, but but that doesn't reflect well on Cambridge, I would say at this point. Um, and uh, and 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 it was clear that Quasi would have to uh, fall on his sword. Uh, but in doing so, they both knew that Liz would be out the door. Uh, moment, you know, within a short time after, there was never a chance of Quasi Quartang becoming prime minister. Uh, uh, he's completely he's out of politics. He's uh, he's a I mean he's being sent off to. Further Siberia, well, he he'll be put to work, you know, uh, loading lumber in some, you know, <laughs> some Stalinist <laughs> war camp, and and so uh, and so so he's out of it. Uh, she's going to be out of it shortly, and essentially the conservative party adults will be back in charge. Dan Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Documentary Ithaca, The Fight to Free Julian Assange. The first scene of the documentary, which celebrated its German premiere at the Human Rights Film Festival in Berlin, shows police carrying WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange out of the Embassy of Ecuador in London and into a high-security vehicle on April 11, 2019. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So Ithaca, directed by Ben Lawrence, follows the campaign to free Assange ahead of the extradition proceedings. At the center of the film are members of his family, including Stella Morris, his spouse and mother of the two of his young children, also as well as his father, John Shipton, who leaves his home and family in Australia to fight for his famous son's release. Your thoughts, Ithaca, the documentary on Steve Poikin. And then, Steve, uh, the fact that, I mean, on Julian Assange, Steve Poikin, and the fact that there now seems to be a lot more traction here on the issue, hopefully it's not too late. 
Well, I mean, you do hope that the the documentary itself is kind of the culmination of two years of uh, John Shipton and Julian Taprother Gabe going on nonstop tour, multiple continents, dozens of countries on the home run for Julian tour, uh, where they basically were traveling around the world talking to anyone who would listen about what was happening. Um, they spent uh, last summer here in the States. Uh, Garland, I, don't, I think you, you were involved in one of those events. Mm-hmm. I know I was there for a bunch of them. Um, where they were essentially, were, you know, two Australians were going around the U.S. explaining how the First Amendment worked to rooms full of Americans who had apparently forgotten. And what the film itself does on a couple of different levels is highlight just how vital not only a free press is, but a functioning government that actually does what it's supposed to do, that doesn't run around breaking every conceivable law under the planet and then having the audacity to charge the people who expose it. Um, and if you have, if anyone listening, if you have the opportunity to see it, please do. If you haven't watched it yet, you know, make sure that you're able to, because it's a very, very good film and very good to share with people. Well, the thing about it is, uh, uh, too, when, when you look at Assange, I think one of the things we have to do, those of us who are uh, doing the best we can to try to um, uh, uh, get people to know what's going on with Assange is as we're seeing, I, and I believe going in and going a- after the midterms, we'll see a greater discussion on something you just said, the actual job of a government, the role of a government. The role of the government is to benefit the systems, not to go off on some crazy ideology of controlling the world and to burn the system, the people in the system up as fuel for whatever their latest crusade is. And Julian Assange was a big part of that conversation. And I think it's important as activists to tie. So all of the important things that people are going to be talking about over the next several months, in particularly after the midterms, to tie the Assange issue into that. What do you think, Steve? Well, I agree. And I've said for a long time, one of the ways that you can determine how free any particular nation, state, or society is is by how free its press is. If we're walking around uh, as a nation saying, okay, not only are there all kinds of things that the press in America is not allowed to print, but we now, through this case with Julian Assange, have established that the United States of America has international jurisdiction over the press, that we can pluck journalists from wherever we like, regardless of whether or not they have political asylum, uh, and throw them in a hole for 175 years. If that's allowed to happen, there is no light anywhere on any government for the rest of the world. This is a, 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 uh, well, a, journalistic, a journalistic endeavor ending uh, scenario that we're facing. And that, regardless of how anyone would feel about Julian Assange, that should be the point. We don't get to have these kinds of conversations going forward unless we secure Julian Assange's freedom now. In fact, I'm gl- that takes me right to my next point, because as I've been listening to this conversation and reading, was reading these articles, one of the things I find very interesting is the issue of the debate, because for the most part in mainstream American media, there's been total radio silence 
on Julian Assange. So it's one thing if there is an ongoing debate in the media about who is this guy, what did he do, and what should how should what what should happen to him. But the United States has for the most part been just persecuting this guy and torturing this guy and there's just about total radio silence in the United States about what the United States government is doing to the guy. Well, and I think the the torture aspect of that does play a significant role into the silence and into the chilling effect. This is something that uh, you know, press freedom advocates for years have warned about, and any number of people who have been on the other end, on the whistleblower end, uh, Daniel Ellsberg being one of the more prominent that I can think of, have discussed this extensively. That the sheer uh, the the sheer act of grabbing a journalist and publisher under political asylum from an embassy and throwing him into a maximum security prison uh, was in and of itself enough to get the rest of the mainstream press to fall in line and to keep their mouths shut and to just keep looking at their contracts or looking at their bonuses or looking at the, you know, $300,000 a network will spend on a podcast that four people listen to and say, okay, well, this is enough now because if I step over the line, I'm done. Well, you know, Steve, I'm also thinking ahead going into the new Congress, and the likelihood is that the Democrats are going to get pounded and the Republicans are going to be in power. However, there are a few Republicans who are pro-Assange, and it's possible, I think, that when the Republicans get in power, there may be an alley, all, an avenue, albeit a narrow one, but there may be an, ar- uh, an, ar- uh, an alley, an avenue to get this Assange issue addressed. Joe Biden will be, you know, hurting. It may, they may see it as a way to poke at Joe Biden. But I think uh, what, what do you think about uh, about that possibility? I think if we can generate uh, a little bit of interest or regenerate a little bit of interest in some of the sitting Congress critters, then that's going to allow for a lot more opportunity uh, out in the wild, in the field, as it were, to have these conversations. Because even if it's Marjorie Taylor Greene, even if it's, you know, Thomas Massey or somebody like that, who isn't really recognized as uh, one of the more easily approachable, let's say, uh, members of Congress, um, that's enough to capture a news cycle. If you can capture a news cycle, you can generate that into a week's worth of conversation and so on. You guys know how it works. Um, so, it, yes, I do. I agree. And I agree that, that doing it with a lame, effectively lame duck uh, president uh, with you know, in a minority in Congress would be uh, at least a very, very effective way to generate some conversation. According according to John Bolton, the 175 years Assange might receive for exposing the abundant dirty laundry known as U.S. foreign policy and imperial violence was hardly sufficient. He would naturally get a fair trial in the United States, though absolute fairness was dependent on him receiving 176 years. Well, I think that's a small amount of the sentence he deserves with such a fabulous nose for justice. Bolton shares common ground with the commissars and and uh, gladiators. That to me is an is a very clear statement and understanding of where that ilk of the mindset 
of that ilk of the John Boltons of the world? John Bolton sits in abject fear all the time. And he reacts to it the way that, that someone who is always afraid but knows that he can call people with guns pretty much anytime he wants to does. Very, very smug and very, very sure of the outcome uh, of what's going to happen because currently it's his bully pulpit. And, you know, it's, it's his effectively system. Is allowing for the ongoing torture and persecution of Julian Assange to take place. Uh, but you can tell in that interview, uh, even though Piers Morgan is kept clearly on his side in this and trying to give John Bolton the benefit of the doubt, you can tell in the interview with his body language, with the way that he's got like the the sneering laughter and whatnot, that he is afraid that Stella Morris is right. But if for some reason the winds shift a little bit, it will be him sitting in the International Criminal Court. It will be him on the chopping block for the countless war crimes that he's planned and helped facilitate. By the way, what is, is it possible that you can update us on the current status? What's going on with Julian? You know, we're always in between hearings or in between decisions or something. Where are we right now with Assange? And that's kind of where we are right now. I thought we were going to have a status update at the end of September, but the UK government is in such a, a uh, position of turmoil with people that don't even that aren't even don't even know what the job description is on the office that they occupy at the current moment. That we're just sort of in a, a period of stasis. Um, hope to hear something from the Home Secretary's office by the end of the month. Hoping to hear something by the Home Secretary's office by the end of the month. Assuming that it's not in Julian's favor, what then, what do you think the next move is? We got just about a minute. Um, I honestly think that they're going to try to carry over any final decision for extradition to after a new American Congress is sworn in, uh, at which point another period of limbo ensues. Effectively, I think the goal is to try to make sure that Julian Assange never makes it out of Belmar's prison. Uh, and the lawfare that they've employed is effectively ensuring that. Is that because of innate domestic politics in Britain, or is that Britain acting as the lapdog of the United States or a combination of the two? 30 seconds. I think it's think it's more heavily on the side of the U.K. is doing the U.S. a favor in this. I don't think that uh, Julian um, will be as I don't think the press will be as quiet once Julian's here. I think the Biden administration knows that and they would like to keep him over there as much as possible. Steve Poikinen, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis and that update, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. You guys are awesome. Take care. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Biden turning to Trump-era rule to expel Venezuelan migrants. Two years ago, Joe, candidate Joe Biden loudly denounced President Trump for immigration policies that inflicted cruelty and exclusion at every turn, including toward those fleeing the quote-unquote brutal government of socialist Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. Now, with increasing numbers of Venezuelans arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border as the November 8 election nears, Biden has turned to an unlikely source for a solution, his predecessor's playbook. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a U.S. labor and human rights lawyer, writer, and activist. He's been a peace activist throughout his life and has been deeply involved in the movement for peace and social justice in Colombia, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and other countries in the global south. He's taught international human rights law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law since 2012. Dan Kovalik, as always, Dan, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So Biden's now uh, invoking a Trump-era rule known as Title 42, which Biden's own Justice Department is fighting in court to deny Venezuelans fleeing their crisis-torn country. And it's, it's interesting, uh, Dan, this is just another example of the uh, Republicans or, or the, the Democrats either being to the right of Republicans or turning to Republicans for solutions to problems that are to, to a great degree of the United States own making. Yeah, no, it's pretty incredible. Of course, as we know, Biden has already been turning to Trump's playbook. Uh, well, let's say Obama's playbook <laughs> for dealing with immigrants. I mean, Obama deported three million people. Let's remember that. Uh, Trump uh, you know, obviously he only had one term, but still did not deport as many per year as, as Obama did in his last years. And uh, meanwhile, Biden has deported, I think, three times more Haitians uh, than Trump did within the same period. So, you know, none of this is surprising. Um, you know, all they do is change the terms of things. Uh, uh, kids are still in cages, but we just call them something else, detention centers or whatever. Um, so none of this is shocking at all. Also wanted to bring your attention to an Orinoco Tribune article. US wait, 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 oh, go ahead. You had one, another one, one on yeah, that? One more go ahead, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. On their description of the government in Venezuela, I, I, I find it very interesting that you know they're talking about this 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 vicious regime and um, just the brutal government of socialist Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. Uh, I mean, how brutal is Maduro? Yeah, he's not brutal at all. You know, I think the people who are fleeing to the border are people who are fleeing uh, economic troubles in Venezuela, and as you touched upon, uh, troubles that the U.S. has created through sanctions. The U.S. continues to apply very draconian sanctions on Venezuela, which make it hard for Venezuela to get food and medicines for its people, and which make it hard for it to prosper economically. Now, Maduro's actually had a lot of gains economically. They expect mm -hmm. about 15 to 20 percent economic growth this year. 
The United States Which, wishes course, it had that level of growth. Yeah. Now, that's an astounding figure, of course, though it's 15 to 20 percent from a pretty sure. low level because of the sanctions. Right. So but growth is you know, growth. Yeah. So Venezuela is struggling economically due to the sanctions. Um, and that's what people are fleeing. And again, for the U.S., one to blame Maduro for this is completely unfair. And two, to punish the Venezuelan migrants who are coming due to the sanctions is also unfair. Well, and here's another sentence from the, the here from the, from from uh, from the uh, article. These were children. They were moms. They were fleeing communism. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre said at the time, actually, it seems to me they were fleeing neoliberalism and they were fleeing um, the American style of gangster capitalism that's trying to rob uh, uh, Venezuela of all of their assets. And, And she should be ashamed of herself being of Haitian descent. She should be ashamed of herself parroting such foolishness. Dan. Yeah, because, again, the Haitian migrants are being treated the worst. And, again, Biden has been the worst in some time for his treatment of Haitian uh, refugees. So, yeah, you're right. She should be ashamed. And moreover, yes, uh, Maduro is not a communist. They have a pluralistic, democratic society uh, with multiple parties. Um, Yeah, again, they're fleeing economic difficulties, which the U.S. has imposed. Yeah through sanctions and, as you mentioned, through just outright theft of Venezuelan assets like the Sicko Oil Company based in the United States. Um, So, yeah, this is a problem of U.S. making, but we will not deal with the fallout. There's another interesting piece in Orinoco Tribune. Biden administration wants kidnapped Venezuelan diplomat Alex Saab to, quote, suffer like Julian Assange, end quote, according to U.N. Human Rights Council special rapporteur. What's happened here? Because it seems as though and I know you're, you're very intimately involved in this case. I, I thought we were talking to you uh, a month ago that. That uh, Alex Saab's situation, legal situation in the United States, seemed to be improving. Now, so where are we? Well, I think things have not moved very well. I mean, I think that what has been shown in court up to this time is pretty good in terms of showing he was a diplomat at the time he was arrested, meaning he should not have been arrested. He should have had immunity. But the court is yet to rule on that officially. Uh, And meanwhile, while while there were hopes and are hopes that he might benefit from a prisoner swap between the U.S. and Venezuela, that has yet to happen. So, you know, he's left in this kind of uh, limbo. Another, uh, there's so many of them, but Orinoco Tribune's on the money today. U.S. foreign policy impasse over Venezuela contending with self-inflicted contradictions. And they go over the contradictions of Juan Guaido, so-called being president at a time when there's democratically elected uh, 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 um, leader, Nicolas Maduro. I mean, they go over a number of the contradictions that are being borne out with how the U.S. is trying to deal with Venezuela. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the U.S. has put itself in a bind. They've they've recognized Juan Guaido as president, even though the guy never even ran for president. I think a lot of people don't even realize that. Uh, He now holds no elected office. Uh, He is totally irrelevant, which 
most of the world, in fact, almost all of the world knows now, you know, while originally the U.S. was able to get about 50 different countries out of about 200 to recognize Maduro, now I think the number's down to about five, uh, I mean, to recognize Guaido. So now you only have about five countries in the world who recognize Guaido. Everyone realizes he is a joke, uh, though the one thing he does uh, represented that the U.S. needs him for is to control all these assets the U.S. has stolen, right? So they've given it to him on the pretext that he's the, you know, uh, true leader of Venezuela. So that's going to be a problem, too, for the U.S. Like when they do pull the plug on Guaido, what's going to happen with all those assets? And that's a very troubling thing. So, but meanwhile, they have to deal with Maduro because he is the person in charge, and they have been dealing with him in discussions about prisoner swaps and and oil deals. Um, so yeah, their policy is completely schizophrenic at this point. Um, they, they pretend to recognize Guaido while at the same time, in practice, really recognizing Maduro. I find this paragraph interesting. Uh, William Newman, in a New York Times uh, opinion piece, admits the U.S.-backed opposition never had a viable plan beyond vague hopes for a military coup or for U.S. intervention. Although these are far from democratic forms of political expression, the former Times reporter Newman still maintains that the opposition is the primary political force in the country committed to democracy. Well, (laughs) I mean, that's if that's if that's not hypocrisy, if that's not contradiction, uh, uh, prima facie contradiction. But this stuff still this stupidity still seems to get published in papers such as The New York Times. Yeah, I mean, and that's just typical of, of how the U.S. foreign policy is reported in the papers. Everything the U.S. does is somehow to advance democracy, even though objectively speaking, you know, the U.S. undermines democratic governments, overthrows democratic governments, and supports, you know, uh, very authoritarian governments. And yet all of it somehow is in the interest of democracy. I mean, really, it is doublespeak. This is Orwellian doublespeak. But sadly, most Americans can read those stories without seeing it for what it is. You know, they they still buy the idea that somehow the U.S. is out there spreading freedom and democracy, when, again, it's very hard to find one shred of evidence of that. You know, Dan, I did want to ask you this. I know you've done a lot of covering of Haiti with what's going on with Haiti now, where it looks like the U.S. is doing another, um, you know, another invasion going on here. What are your thoughts on, on currently what's going on with Haiti? Well, so there are major protests there right now against the U.S.-backed leader, I don't want to call him president, he wasn't elected, who was put in place after the assassination of the duly elected president uh, by, uh, amongst others, Colombian uh, Colombian hit squad that was most likely being supported by the U.S. So there's demonstrations against that leader, but also demonstrations against any intervention by the U.S., because they see that coming. Meanwhile, the U.S. is going to the Security Council of the U.N. to try to get support for an intervention. I doubt that they'll be able to get support, because I doubt if Russia 
in China will go for that. In fact, I've seen videos of people on the streets of Port-au-Prince protesting with Russian flags, <laughs> urging Russia to veto that uh, resolution. So we'll see, and we'll see if the if the resolutions voted down at the UN whether the U.S. will go ahead anyway. It'll be very interesting to see how that narrative gets spun in terms of Haitians waving Russian flags in a uh, unstable situation that is of the United States making. And I, I have to keep driving home this point that this is a conflict that of the United States making, and the solution is much simpler than sending in military forces. Dan Kovalik, we got one minute. Yeah, I mean, they should allow the Haitians to conduct democratic elections uh, and, and properly elect a new president. I mean, frankly, all this goes back to the U.S., Canada, and France overthrowing uh, President Aristide in 2004 and sending him to the Central African Republic. Um, and and the, really, the, the country has never stabilized since then. Well, actually, Dan, we can go back 216 years because today is the 216th uh, commemoration of the assassination of Jean-Jacques uh, Dessalines. Yeah, well, that's for sure. I mean, you can't absolutely go back that far, but certainly in terms of recent problems, mm -hmm. Aristide, the overthrow of Aristide twice, in fact, uh, really has caused the current instability. But you're Got right. It. I mean, the, every time Haiti tries to move forward, the U.S. tries to push it back. And we're, and we're seeing that right now. Dan Kovalik, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. We're out.